Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to episode number 85 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, where I, your host, Mac B. The Wolf, is an American expat living in the UK who misses his record collection more than his friends and family back home in the States, and trying to bring the US rock fan, the UK rock perspective, and vice versa here, as me and my co-host, Action Jackson, Our huge Anglophiles when it comes to our rock and roll. Grew up listening to all the classics, and now that I live here, I'm trying to do my best to get to see them, to get to know some of the haunts around London and the rest of England, and just better understand why some people make it big in one place and maybe not in the other. As I continue my own rock and roll journey here, trying to expand my horizons while sticking to my roots as best I can. And we've had a lot of great interviews lately, and Great live shows. I mean, look over the last few months, we've had some amazing interviews. We've had Deborah Bonham and Peter Bullock talk about their new album. We've had Jeff Downs of Yes and Asia talking about the loss of Alan White and preparing for the Close to the Edge 50 tour of the UK and Ireland. We've had Carl Palmer of Emerson, Lake and Palmer in Asia talking about the Asia and Asia box set from that fateful night at the Budokan in December of 1983. And talking to Chris Slade of ACDC and The Firm and Manford Mann and so many other bands about his extraordinary career. And he's on tour right now. You should definitely go see him if you're in the UK or Europe. But also got to see some great live shows here as live music has come back to the UK in a big way. Saw Genesis' second to last show ever. Saw Simple Minds on their 40th anniversary tour. First night of the tour, you know. And that was really special. Got to see Sting live at the Palladium. Recently saw Yes at Royal Albert Hall. Saw The Stones not once but twice. Live. In Hyde Park. And we have shows on all of those, so you're going to have to go back and check those out. Last week's show was not only Stones Part 2, but Action Jackson's take on the stadium tour, which is finally happening in America with Def Leppard and Motley Crue at the top. And I know my buddy Matt B. was out to see them recently in Detroit, and we hope he had a good time there. This week, we're going to go back to our roots a little bit. We're going to talk about an album, doing an album review again. I know it's been a little while, but this one's special because it is celebrating its 40th anniversary this week as we release the show. And that's Judas Priest screaming for vengeance. Now, everybody knows Judas Priest. They're the metal gods. I think they're on their 50th anniversary tour or some version of it now. And they started off a little different. They, they weren't really a heavy metal band. They were kind of a weird, acid, kind of rock, weird band when you're talking about some of their original albums back in the 70s. But eventually in the late 70s, when you get to Unleashed in the East and Killing Machine or Hellbent for Leather, depending on where it was released, where you live, and then into British Steel, Point of Entry, Screaming for Vengeance, that's when they kind of honed in on their classic sound. And it took them a little while to catch fire in the U.S., But this is the album that really did it. British Steel was big because it had Living After Midnight and Breaking the Law. Some other great rock classics and priest classics on there. But it didn't really take off until you got to You Got Another Thing Coming. And that was the launching point really for Priest in the U.S. I was fortunate enough once to see them in the front row. Just last second said, "Eh, I wonder if they have any tickets left. Go on Ticketmaster. Boom. Front row seat. Grabbed it. Ran up there that night. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe that I scored a front row ticket to see Priest. And there they were in all their glory, 
KK, Glenn, Ian, Scott Travis, and of course the metal god himself, Rob Halford. That was a good 15 years ago, maybe more than that. Yeah, 17 maybe. But so glad that I got to do it because you never know how long these bands are going to go. And they are still going out, but obviously KK has been out of the band for a while. Glenn has hit some health problems. And that's too bad he's not really playing at all. Or maybe one song I think he might come up for now. I'm not exactly sure. They've got great replacements, of course, but it's not quite the same old priest. So I am glad that I had the opportunity to do it. So we're going to get into this album. But first, they need to take care of a little business. One is we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family. You can check out at Pantheon Pods or www.pantheonpodcast.com. About 100 different shows out there. Taste for everybody. Some amazing hosts and shows out there for you to listen to. We like to give shout-outs to our friends who we had on the show or we've been on their show. And that includes Paul from Vintage Rock Pod and This Day Rocks. That includes Jay Scott from The Hook Rocks. It was a great show. And, of course, Tom and Zeus from the Shout It Out Loud cast, our friends. And we're so glad that they're back in action with the number one KISS podcast on the planet. And, of course, we now have a killer sponsor, rarevinyl.com who's been in business almost four decades now delivering high quality vinyl cd with its singles lps tour books posters dvds anything you want to look for they have over 250,000 products in their warehouse i've been to their warehouse it's amazing everything that they have in there they have a killer team we hope to have one of their record buyers on sometime to uh, tell you about what they do and how they do it. Hopefully we'll get that nailed down here pretty soon. But definitely go check out rarevinyl.com and use our code. Use the code PODCAST and you get 10% off your order. That's a great deal. And they do ship all over the world. So wherever you are, I know we've got a lot of fans in the UK and the US, but we've been heard in over 100 countries around the world. So if you're looking for that hard-to-find item or you want something in really good condition, Check out rarevinyl.com. We appreciate their sponsorship. Great, great synergy with our show. Uh, and we encourage you to check out rarevinyl.com. Now back to streaming for vengeance. Again, this one really kind of helped break them big in America. At this point, MTV was out. The song You Got Another Thing Coming is big. And you could make a video out of it. It had the lasers in it. I think they also used those in their stage show. You got Rob in his full-on metal or S&M gear, depending on which side of the fence you might be on there. But really kind of showing out uh, as the metal god, Glenn, of course, in his red leather, KK in his black. But this is really what kind of blew them up in the U.S. They had a decent following. They had some do good record sales. But getting You Got Another Thing coming on the radio and the charts really helped solidify them as an arena act. And they really kind of took off in America for here for the next Hell, really, a solid 10 years. And then grunge happened and the band broke up a little bit. Halford went out on his own. They got Ripper Owens in to replace him. But then when he came back uh, in the early 2000s, well, that was a game changer. And we're so glad to have them back. But Screaming for Vengeance, classic, classic album. And, and one that I didn't discover till later in life. I think Jackson is the same way on that. But you always knew who Judas Priest were because of the song You Got Another Thing coming, at least in the U.S. In Britain, in the U.K., you could get into the charts uh, with a heavy metal song in the late 70s, in the early 80s. It really didn't happen in America until MTV came along. Quiet Riot, Van Halen got on MTV and then also got into the top of the charts that way. And that kicked the door open for so many other bands. But Judas Priest was among them. And Judas Priest... Because of You've Got Another Thing Coming from Screaming for Vengeance, that set the foundation for greatness in America. 
And I know that they are still respected all around the world, but in the U.S., that was the one that really changed the game for them. So that's what we're going to review here today. On the 85th edition of The Ugly American Werewolf in London, it's Judas Priest screaming for vengeance right here on The Wolf. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. This record was, this is a strange animal, this record, because I don't know why it wasn't bigger in the United States. I don't know. I mean, I've got my, I've got my thoughts, but it just, to me, this should have been a lot bigger than it was here in the United States. Well, here's the thing. It really was the record that, that broke them in the United States. They could tour as a, as a main act in the United States, but they didn't do arenas and things like that. They, they would do theaters and they do smaller places. So they did have a following. They weren't on the radio too much. And certainly in the early to mid-70s, their sound wasn't what it became by the time you got to British Steel. Or even Hellbent for Leather or Killing Machine, depending on where you were and where that album was released. To me, that's once they get to Hellbent for Leather slash Killing Machine, that's, that's when their sound really kind of starts to form. Really, to me, I pick up Judas Priest on Unleashed in the East, the live set from Tokyo from the late 70s that's killer and it's got Victim of Changes and Diamonds and Rust and Green Man Alicia and stuff like that on it. And then from there, kind of like once Kiss did Alive, they upped their game in the studio. I think they started to up their game in the studio in a big way. Hellbent for Leather, they do British Steel. Point of Entry was right before Screaming for Ventures. And and British Steel was huge because it had Breaking the Law and it had Living After Midnight, these kind of anthems that really put them on the charts in the UK. Didn't make a huge dent in America. Screaming for Vengeance did go double platinum in America, which is pretty darn good for a heavy metal act because they don't play it on, they didn't play it on like American rock radio. They didn't play it on American pop radio. And MTV, I never saw them on MTV. They may have done it late at night or something like that, or early in the morning, but I never really saw them on MTV. I didn't even discover Judas Priest until we were in college. Yeah, I, 
maybe when they got to like headbangers ball, they would play like breaking the law or something, but yeah, not, that was not in heavy rotation. I mean, I had heard another thing coming like in high school right? and a little bit of electric eye, uh, and then breaking the law. And then every once in a while you get like heads are going to roll, but yeah, they, they were not, they were not, uh, on any kind of top 40 radio or anything in the United States. Right. Uh, I think they were, they, I think they had the songs that maybe they could have played. I think that the image was something that people stayed away from a lot Probably uh, in the U.S. I, the name of the band was a little like, I mean, there's no way any kind of like Christian right. place, you know, down in the South, they were never going to play that. That's way too close to being blasphemous for people. I mean, which was great for metal fans. That's what they, that's what they love. That's what metal's all about. I do have to say that I cheated a little bit on this one and watched Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Uh, and I know what you're going to say. It's not till 86 on the turf. Shut up. I wanted to watch it because I just wanted to see the people in the heavy metal parking lot. And it made me kind of sad because that's gone now. Like they were just these kids from everywhere around. I think it was in Maryland. Mm-hmm. So they were from all Virginia, all over this place, just getting there. I don't know how they were going to make it through the show because most of them were pretty hammered before the thing even started. That's right. But they just wanted to get out and have this communal experience that we just don't do anymore. I know. It's funny to hear the girl say, what do you think about Rob Halford? I jump his bones. <laughs> like, well, he might not like yeah. that, but, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and just that the whole, that, and that's another whole weird thing too, about how, you know, he has to portray this image that he's not at all. And, you know, Oh yeah, he's totally metal. You know, tough guy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Oh, he's so hot. I jumped in. Could you imagine that? Like, uh, uh, sorry, sweetheart. No, thank you. Yeah. And, you know, where, where do you think he got those clothes from? I mean, take a closer look. You know, it's the S&M shop. That's where he got all that leather gear from, right? Well, and I think the thing was, when did he come out of the closet? Like, 92? Like, when he came, when he left the band and did the did his solo stuff, that he really came out of the closet. And people, you know, I remember seeing an interview and they're like, I can't believe that you're gay. Or, really? Go back and look at those outfits and tell me that you there wasn't at least one point in time. Oh yes, okay, with the whips and the handcuffs and everything. I see it now. Okay, right. Have you not seen the "Don't Go" video? Because "Don't Go" is <laughs> if you see the video, it's like it should be pretty obvious to you, but that's okay. Now, yeah, and, and especially in America, right? You can't at that time. It was still such a taboo. It's like something that, you know, you maybe you did on one Miami Vice episode out of like 120 or something like that. But that was it. It was still just not something that was talked about, not something you were out in the open with, especially as a meddler, because you got these kind of hard-charged males, you know, young, aggressive males, you know, who want chicks and just want loud music. Yeah, that would have spoiled his image. And the, it's not like the band didn't know. They knew that. So they needed him to keep this kind of metal god image. So that must have right. been hard for Rob, obviously, to keep it concealed. Even though if you if you took a hard look and you looked at some of the lyrics, <laughs> you you could figure it out. But no, yeah, I think it was maybe when we were in college, it was, I feel it was like after the metal years came out, there was like a, there was like a video and a like a four disc record or a double disc record, double disc CD. There was like 73 to 93 or something like that. Yeah. Not necessarily a greatest hits, but it was 
here's a collection of our songs that really kind of shows who we are and who we've been over the years. And, and most of it was pretty from like 78, 79 on. There wasn't a ton of really old stuff like from Rock and Roll or Sad Wings mm-hmm. of Destiny on there. Stuff like that. But th- there was a video. And I don't know. Was he talking about coming out in that video? I honestly don't remember. I, I, I don't remember that either. I, I really think that it was that the kind of the maybe the early to mid 90s when he left the band right. and started doing his solo stuff. That's when I remember him really kind of going on the media campaign and openly coming out of the closet. Yeah, I and think then, he was in an interview with like David Fricke or one of those Rolling Stones, a Rolling Stone journalist people like right before he came out to the general public. Okay. And he asked him, you know, who would be your ideal lover or something along those lines? And he said, how we long, you know, so... <laughs> But I guess I didn't know if that made it into the article or not. But, you know, now he, you know, he lives out as a gay man, still does fantastic shows, can still reach down and and hit some of those notes. It's pretty amazing. Uh, I saw him. I saw Judas Priest in the front row about 12 more than that years ago, maybe 15 at this point. God, I'm getting old. It's just kind of, you know, here's the thing. Sometimes when the season ticket holders don't want to use certain seats, they go back into sales and it can happen like two days before the show or the a day before the show or something like that. So I was thinking, well, maybe I'll go see Judas Priest. I'd like to, uh, but I'd like to have decent seats. So I just said, I randomly go in, give me one seat for Judas Priest, front row. I'm like, are you kidding me? So I just went and bought it. And then I went to buy the one next to me and it was available. But yeah, I was in the bank the brokerage, you know, and none of those people want to go. And I'm looking around, yeah. oh, there's nobody, I couldn't get anybody on the phone. I should have just bought it. And then eventually I would have found somebody to go front row, but I just, I was not thinking clearly because you're, you kind of get into spasm. Like, oh, oh, what do I do? Do I buy it? What if I can't sell it? Who wants to go? I can't think of anybody. Ah, and everybody else is at work. So I, there's nothing I can really do about just calling people up. So, but, but no, it was amazing. I got Ian Hills picked that night. But no, this one, I mean, look, it, it was the single. It was, you got another thing coming that kind of broke them in America. It, I've since seen the video, of course, and it has a lot of lasers in it, which I guess for the time was cutting edge. It's a little, little Velveeta-y now. But still, at the time, it's like they look tough. They're wearing this leather. And Rob is sporting his short haircut, right? He's not right. trying to have the long hair. He's he's okay with, okay, yes, I'm going a little bald. So I'm going to trim it down a little bit. Still going to have all the leather on. Still going to have this killer voice. But that's what really, that got on some top 40, at least top 40 rock stations and helped them sell this record to break them in America, really. Yeah, I, I, that was the first time that I had heard of them. And then I kind of worked that, well, that was the first song. I don't remember hearing them in 82. Right. But that was the first song I heard and then kind of worked it backwards from there. I remember uh, I had some friend about that time, like 83, 84, and he had an older brother. And I remember he, the older brother had this picture of Halford on poster of Halford on the motorcycle. Oh, yeah. And I was like, wow, that looks with the stage behind him. Like that looks really cool. I don't know who these guys are, but man, does that look cool? But okay. I don't think, I don't think it was something that you could listen to out and about because like uh, another thing coming, you can't turn that up loud enough. Like no matter how loud the style the car stereo goes, it can still go louder. There have been more than one time that I've fantasized about hitting those power chords mm-hmm. at the beginning in front of just a giant studio audience. And th- that's kind of one thing that I that I don't really like about Glenn Tipton is he's he's a phenomenal player, but he's kind of like he holds it up real, you know, real 
tight. He doesn't do like the big windmills or anything like that. They're not a real flashy band too. That's kind of the other thing. Like they, they can, they play their asses off, right? but they don't have the big look at me kind of stage techniques. Yeah. You're kind of right about that. I mean, they do some head banging. They do some coordinated Glenn and KK kind of, you know, throw shapes together. They kind of head bang together. Yeah. Ian Hill's background throwing that bass around quite a bit, but he, you know, and the thing is, sonically, it, it shaped up a little bit because Dave Holland finally had been with them for a few albums. Like, they famously would lose a drummer after one or two albums. This is the first time they had a drummer on more than two straight albums. So I got to believe that helps shape it a little bit better, makes it easier to work with. And, and he does stand out on a few of these tracks. I mean, obviously, Scott Travis is the man and brought in the double bass. And, and right. you know, he, he's a killer at large, and he's been with them more than 30 years now. He's incredible. But I, I got to give Dave Holland some credit as far as setting down some beats uh, and some rhythms to allow the guys to kind of do what they do, which is, you know, fly with that double guitar attack. And I, I kind of didn't give him enough credit either because uh, you're right. I always think now, I just think of Scott Travis as the drummer. But yeah, he, he was hitting him hard on this one and, and definitely had a harder edge to it. Kind of the problem with Ian Hill is that he's, he's very understated mm -hmm. and, and it's there, but it's not super prominent. Although somebody did point out, you know, they're talking about in the world of metal, his bass grooves are steel belted. I mean, if you really listen to it, you're like, yeah, he doesn't, he's not real flashy, but he's down there just digging out that bass part. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like Maiden, like it's not like Steve Harris where he's out in front and he's playing, you know, along with the, the more of the melody and he's not the rhythm. So I don't think he gets enough credit and, and definitely Dave Holland doesn't get enough credit for playing on this, uh, this album either. Yeah. I, I think you're right about that. And it's another one, as we've discussed here in the past, bands go away from the UK to record albums, whether it's to the islands or just to another country, because for tax purposes, it's important that you don't work in the UK. They really ding you on that. So they got to go to Ibiza, which doesn't sound so bad in Spain, to record well, see, this. That's, that's the problem here, folks. There's a time to work and there's a time to fool around. And apparently this was both of those times because apparently once they got to Spain, it was like, wow, there's a party like 24 seven. Okay, boys, we're here to work and oh, everybody's drunk and fooling around. And yeah. I mean, it really, like really this album to me sounds like it should have been recorded like in Prague or something, right. you know, with just in bitter coldness, just this metal. Oh no, we were in Spain party. What? Oh yeah. And then we did the rest of the mixes in Florida. Oh, okay, cool. But I can just imagine the, uh, uh, the production guys on this one, like, Oh, what's today going to be like, because we don't know where these guys are. We got to drag them in here and get them working. Well, that's the thing. I mean, do you, do you really want to work during the day in Spain? No, go to the beach, you know, go enjoy the sun, you know, get, you're not in England anymore. We're trust me, it's gray a lot. So let's go. If you're in Spain, let's go outside. Yeah. And then, well, you want to work at night? Well, now the party's on, right? So, uh, yeah. yeah, so it does make it make it tougher. And I guess Tom Allen, who had, has worked with them a lot over the years, that was his major job is to try to corral them and get them going in the right <laughs> direction. Yeah. And it turns 40. Oh, boy. It turns 40 this year. Mm -hmm. So it's a, yeah, it's a and, good time to reflect on it. Yeah, and I think I think overall, I'm not going to say I love every track on this one, but I mean overall, it's a. It, I think it's more of a. It, it's definitely a harder record 
than point of entry. It's a, it's, I think it's got more direction to it. Um, I think there are a couple of tracks they could have reworked a little bit, but like, I mean, if you want to start at the beginning, the Hellion, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a cool, I mean, to me though, even though they're separate tracks, it's always been one, two into electric eye. I don't want to hear electric eye without the Hellion intro. I'm with you. It, it's kind of like E5150 and Mob Rules. It, you know, it, they literally just right. kind of meld into each other. I can hear Mob Rules without that, but you you wouldn't you wouldn't want to hear E5150 and then hear him play something else like he does on Live Evil. I just I've always thought that was weird. I'm like, why would you do that? I mean, is that even the way it went in concert? I'm not even sure. I, I think they just cut it up to to make the album that way. But no, you're right. The Hellion and Electric Eye, and it's a great way to open the show. Yes. Yeah. Because especially when you, you know, you kind of got that band's not there yet. And, you know, you, but you know, the show is going to start and you go into that. Yeah. That's a great intro. There was a commercial with a, it was like for a van or something like the Toyota, whatever the van is, you know, like, oh, you can still be metal and have this, uh, you know, minivan to haul your kids around. But they used the hell yet. I'm like, and then there's fire in the back of it and everything. Wow, that really is a cool. Like you want to talk about, like if you if somebody didn't know what metal was, like I don't know what metal is. I've never heard that. You play that. Oh, okay, I got it now. That's right. That's right. And obviously, the song "Electric Eye" is a very Orwellian kind of statement. You know, an elected robot satellite. You know, who is there to keep the country clean and check in on everybody, making sure they're all doing what they're supposed to do as good citizens of the Republic, watching all the time. But there, there's, a, there's a sick little bit of back and forth between KK and Glenn in this one. And what's always interesting to me is in the liner notes of these records, even on the live records, they tell you who's soloing. And if it's just Glenn, they say it's Glenn on this song. Or it's just KK, they say it's KK. But if they go back and forth, they go... Glenn, then KK, then Glenn, then KK, then both. You know, they, they want you to know who's playing where on, on every song. And that's just kind of part of the culture of Judas Priest, not only to have these blistering solos and this great back and forth between them, but you you get to know whose tone is whose and whose riffs belong to, to each guy. Yeah. The, the, the only other thing on this one that I find a little bit interesting, and I thought I, I could be making this up, but I thought I heard an interview with somebody at some point in time. You were talking about the Orwellian deal mm-hmm. on this, but you live in London now, and you can't scratch your backside in jolly old London town without somebody seeing you. There's closed circuit TVs, I mean, uh, cameras everywhere. Yeah. I think they've had that like since the sixties, they started implementing that. So like to grow up with that, like somebody's always watching and it's to keep you safe, quote unquote. Sure. I think we don't we don't have that you don't have that concept here in the United States. Like, yeah, there's like bank cameras and stuff like that, but like in the UK, there's cameras every single square inch of space. And and I wonder about growing up with that, like if you were a kid in the sixties, growing up with that, you're like Am I really that safe? Or am I really am I better off for this? Or what's the deal? So I don't know. I just always thought that was a little bit you say that, but are you really meeting the the public interest in the UK of putting these cameras up? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I do know that across the street from one of the medical centers that I go to is a bookstore, or at least that used to be, where George Orwell used to work. And, and it's got a big plaque. There's always plaques commemorating, you know, people who've done amazing things that are now passed on around London. 
And there's some great music ones. You know, I've been to John Lennon's, you know, Bob Marley's, Freddie Mercury, all those folks. But yeah, there's there's one, uh, there's a thing to kind of commemorate that. My only other note would be, eventually, I think it was on the Turbo Tour, where they recorded Priest Live, they kind of had this janky robot was their big prop. <laughs> and on this song, Rob would kind of sit in the robot's hand, strap himself in with a seatbelt, and then he would kind of pick him up. So then he could sing, up here in space, I'm looking down on you. And I bet in 1985 or 86, whenever that was done, I bet that seemed really, really cool. But to see it now, it's kind of funny to me, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, I would like to have seen the uh, the pitch meeting for that because, I mean, you're right. At that point in time, you had to up – everybody had to up the game on the stage. Okay, so we're going to have this big robot, and then it's going to – what? No, 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 you're going to love it. Huh? Okay, yeah, you're right. Some of the stuff does look a little – dated now that you go back and revisit it now they just i mean i think what do they do they bring the motorcycle out at some point in time but that's about it they don't have i don't think they really have any kind of uh any kind of other props other than the the, the drum risers the nine thousand marshals and then the motorcycle that's right that's right and, and from this tour there was kind of a famous I, I guess it was a vhs and maybe eventually a dvd it was kind of them live in memphis on this tour and okay. yeah it was it was so it was between unleashed in the east and priest live uh, and i believe if i'm not mistaken that when you get one of the anniversary probably the 30th anniversary of screaming for vengeance that that's the companion disc is that memphis show but you can see it on youtube and i, I may have it in some kind of a priest box set i'm not sure but it it, it created iconic images because again this is the album that broke them in the U.S. And then once you hear, okay, well, now I've got a record that I like, how do I see them? And I think that Memphis show, them recording that and then releasing that somehow on VHS, is what also kind of helped grow their popularity in now the MTV generation. Okay. So. Was it was that the one where there was there was one where Glenn was talking about he's on stage and it's all dark and they're playing something and he feels something come past him, behind him, like something moves behind him. And he kind of doesn't really cop to it because they're playing the song. Then the lights come on and a giant piece of the rigging had come down and basically swung right by. He's like, if I had been a step back, the thing would have just clobbered me. And then they had one where they went into – I don't remember what song it is, but there, there's one where Halford comes out on stage on the motorcycle. He comes riding out. And so they go into it and there's no Rob Halford. There's no – vocals and they're like what is going on i guess he had come up the ramp hit his head fallen off the thing and was just lying there like passed out like, oh boy i guess we needed a couple but it's all dark you're trying to do this in the dark to well, make the well, yeah and there's smoke or dry ice everywhere so where yes. is he supposed to go so usually back in the day he would come up in the motorcycle for hellbent for leather i right. think eventually down the road they may have switched that to freewheel burning for a while but basically the, the stage kind of opens up in the middle and there's a ramp and he comes up it and i guess it didn't it just didn't come up all yeah. the way or something like that and it, it knocked him off and about cold cocked him one night the very spinal tap moment there for old rob yeah. i wonder too you're talking about them them changing drummers every album at the beginning i wonder if that was part spinal tap too like was that uh 
inspired because they didn't just make it up. It came from somewhere. Right. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, and the whole uh, Stonehenge thing was Sabbath did use the Stonehenge prop on a tour, but it wasn't too small. It was like it was so big they couldn't get it in. <laughs> you know, through any of the doorways or exits or anything, you know, into an arena or into a theater or anything like that. So they kind of did the opposite. Like, let's just make it one and a half feet tall. And the, and the dwarves would jump around. And Hi, this is Carl Palmer, and you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf. Hey, folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, we, we got we to gotta move on on the record here. All right. But, yeah, I mean, great way to open the record, great way to open a, a night, a show. And then you go to Riding on the Wind, which is a little – it's not a necessarily a change of pace because the drums at the beginning kind of sound like yeah. gunfire to me. And you got a high screech from, from Rob. But, no, this is a fast song. And, again, there's some, there's some good back and forth – from Glenn and KK, it, it may not be my favorite, but I I like revisiting and listening to this one. Yeah, I, I mean, I I wrote down this this could perhaps have been a single. I mean, it sounds it's got the right length, it's got the right intro, the drums yeah are showcased at the beginning. I think that sounds really good. Again, yeah, I hadn't heard this song in a while, but it, nice to go back to it and and listen to it again. Yeah, I, I think this is something they played a little bit back in the day, and maybe they've they brought it back maybe once or twice, something like that. But then Bloodstone was the change of pace. The third song usually is, and it's, technically it's the fourth song, but like we say, the Hellion Electric Eye are really a twofer. It's it's heavy, but it's more brooding. It isn't like the fast-paced stuff. It's, it's kind of more of a brood to it. And then <laughs> there's kind of the spare solo until it becomes a face melting solo, right? <laughs> and it's got a nice, it's got a nice um, bass at the beginning too. Like you can hear Hill playing underneath on this one. Yeah, this this is a good track too. I had heard it more than Riding the Wind, but again, one that kind of fell off my radar, and so it was great to to revisit this one also. Yeah, no, and and great priest power chords on this one, you know, because if they they both can do all the fiddly bits and really get up and down the neck, then. All right, well, then let one guy showcase that. Let the other guy just riff, you know, have those big, fat, beautiful chords. So, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed listening to this one, too. It's, it's not one that I went into saying, well, I'm going to like Bloodstone because I know the chorus. I can hear it in my head. Yeah. But, again, I, I thought it was cool. You can definitely hear – this is kind of, I think, where Priest really comes up with their signature sound. Like if you didn't know – if you'd never heard this song before – but you listen to Judas Priest, you would say that's a Priest song. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it just sounds like it's right in their wheelhouse. Definitely, definitely. A good Priest song, a fan favorite. The next one is, it's... Awful. It's, awful. It's surprising to me. For, it's awful. For a few reasons. Yes. Take These Chains, 
I can't believe this was the second single. No wonder there was no third single. This was the second mm-hmm. single. No, I, yeah, and 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 I I can see why they didn't. They, they wrote this with who? Somebody else. No, they, I don't even know who if actually, they wrote it. Bob Halligan Jr. I, I think it was just his song. Just his song. Okay, yeah. and he went on to do like "Heads Are Gonna Roll," which I love. That song rules. This is a piece of trash <laughs> because I'm gonna bet you could have taken out all the lyrics. the The music on it is great. It's the lyrics that are just sappy, and I think this was a, we need a single on this one. We need a radio, like, ballad-esque single, so let's do, let's do this. Ugh. <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit. It just, it sounds like, like I said, it sounds like an add-on. Like, we need another, we need a ballad. We need something that can go on the radio. Okay, well, let's just do this. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of atmospheric at first. You know, it's not just come out crunch, crunch. It kind of sets a little bit of a tone. And then there's a big crash. It sounds like they looped Rob's vocals for the for the chorus. Like, it's not Glenn and KK singing behind him. It's... It's, so he's okay. So he's harmonizing with himself, which is hard to do live, obviously. But that's what it yeah. sounds like to me that they looped Rob in there. I, I don't know. I, I remember not liking this much. I like it more than I remember liking it. But that doesn't mean that it's a great priest song. And, and I don't yeah, think no, they. I don't it, think they play it. <laughs> which is funny because it is a single. Although Maiden does that too. They're they're singles that they've released that they never play live. But. I think this could have been a good song had you swapped out the lyrics for something else. I think I think the tune is good, sounds good, and you know you kind of get excited. You're like, this is one of my like, uh, yeah, yeah, almost had it. Right. You listen to the beginning, you're like, okay, cool, and then the lyrics come in. What? What? No, this doesn't fit. Stop that. But it's, it's interesting. Been a Pat Benatar song. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you like heads are gonna roll because to me that's a little bit of the turn of phrase is pretty cliche. Heads are going to roll, right? And so yeah. it could have been written for them. It could have been written for Kicks, who Bob Halligan apparently did a lot of work with, and he's written songs for other people. And like, so yes, that's a heavy, that's a hard rock, heads are going to roll kind of thing. But it, it to me, that felt like we need a hit, let's get a hit, heads are going to roll. Oh, yeah, that's a cliche turn of phrase that fits into metal. Okay, we'll take that one. It's It's not that it's a bad song, it's just, it, it's not yeah. groundbreaking, what I, right? What I love about that song is that opening, that one chord, and then and then it goes. Dun, 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 dun. I just like I like the way that the music goes. You're right, heads are gonna roll. Okay, that is cliche. I like the music in that one, and I guess the lyrics for me are passable, where these are not. These are not. <laughs> well, of course, I guess that was on the Turbo album, which is controversial. That actually was on the, the no, Defenders of the Faith. Defenders of the Faith, correct. The next record, okay, good, good. See, that's good knowledge there. Well done there, Jackson. I might just yeah. Well, you know, I, we should we should maybe talk about Turbo one time because that that's a that's a much maligned that that was a trajectory that they went in where people were like, oh no, we don't like this. Right? Yeah. Like you have gone <laughs> the wrong way. You know. <laughs> Meanwhile, right around then, you know, Iron Maiden's doing Power Slave, and you know, Metallica is doing. Master of Puppets, or, or you know, at least Ride the Lightning was out. Master of Puppets, they were working on, I think, at the time. So, yeah, yeah, for, for you to do, I'm your Turbo Lover, and it kind of has that computerized ZZ Top kind of sound to it. It's yes. like, yeah, yes, it's not what we're looking Swing for. Swing and a miss. Well, then, what do you think of Pain and Pleasure, the next song? 
Unfortunately, I think that, that he's um, he's got a lot of truth to what he's saying. You cause me pain, but you bring me pleasure. Yeah, I've been there before. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a. I think this was another one too. Where this may have been why they kind of had a hard time in the United States because they kind of, even though they didn't really say anything about S&M, there's a lot of S&M that you can take from this. And this is definitely one of them. See, I told you these guys are crazy. They Mm -hmm. do weird things. And so I think think the song is about relationships where it's just like you want to make this work, but you just keep bashing your head against the wall. But I think that it it definitely takes on a different meaning if you if you want it to, right? As as good sh- songs should, it, yeah. It shouldn't just be obvious what necessarily what a song is about. I mean, unless it's a country song, that it has to be. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I like it, it, you know getting this song. It's a riff and stomp kind of thing. You got the riff and you got the drums stomp in there. It's a little cliche. I don't think it's bad. No, and it's the last song on the first side from back in the day when we listened to tapes and LPs and things like that. But yeah, obviously, pain and pleasure, the two sides of the coin. And he could be talking about the band. You yeah. bring me pain, he bring me pleasure. You be talking about one of his lovers, you know. So yes, you bring me pleasure, but it's pain because I have to hide you. You know, I can't be out in the open with you. So that's got to be tough, no doubt. Now you get to the second side, though, Jackson. And this is where I think the record really picks up. Usually, you put all your best songs up front. And like we said, we love Hellion Electric Eye. But I think the second side is better than the first. Yeah, yeah, it definitely, once you flip that over, yeah, you're you're starting off at about 90 miles an hour. I don't know why they didn't put this one out as a single either, Screaming for Vengeance. Yeah, was it too hard? Was the, Were the guitars too ripping? Maybe. I, I don't know. It's... It's awesome. To me, the song that really epitomized Judas Priest for me was Free Will Burning with the howling okay. Rob Halford vocals. And then the, not only the back and forth between Glenn and KK, but then the doubling at the end of the solo mm-hmm. together. That's cool. And that's basically what you've got here. You know, it's fast paced. You've got howling vocals from Rob. You've got their training back and forth. And then they're together and we have a friend Ellen who will tell you that this is better than free will burning. She could be right. Okay. Free will burning just holds a, a special place in my heart just because I it's the one that I found first and I was knocked out like wow would you cuz you and I are lead guitar guys I'm like wow would you listen to that shredding yeah. that is so cool. But this is very much in its vein. Yeah, and and this one you get the you get the signature Rob Howe for screaming at the beginning. Yep, uh, and, and near the imagine, end. Yeah, and I can imagine you know in 1982 when maybe you know you didn't have you had to put it on the hi-fi that there were people all over the United States saying what is that god awful sound coming out of there and then, and when you think like he pretty much made this whole thing up. Like he, he taught himself how to sing like this. Mm-hmm. There's nobody else that can. I think I told somebody that and they're like, yeah, it sounds like he never had a voice lesson in his life. I know that's what the cool thing is. Nobody can sing like him. I mean, other than, you know, the Ripper, Ripper Ellis, uh, yeah. who just sat in his bedroom and copied him for a hundred years. But yeah, it, it, this, this to me is a great way to start side two because it's not, there's no, we're not messing around. We're going right into it. Well, and look, there's nothing wrong with being self-taught. Yes, we could all use some help learning certain things. But like you say, the way Mark Knopfler plays, it looks like he never took a guitar lesson. I, I think he did. But 
who's to argue how he does it? Or, you know, there's a golfer in the United States, Bubba Watson. He's never taken a golf lesson. He's never, you know, he, he didn't grow up with a lot of money. He taught himself how to play. Well, he shouldn't take one now because he's right. won two masters and someone's just going to mess him up. He knows how to do it that works for him. So let him do it, you know, so. Yeah, and, and the same thing with Halford, too, because you did, if he were to have taken lessons, he would have never come up with this. Right. And so it, it is cool to have somebody who is, yeah, completely self-taught, and, and to think that you can do it on your own is pretty exciting, too. Exactly, exactly. And then that walks us right into the big single, You Got Another Thing Coming, which I guess was one that, it's not so much that it didn't almost make the album, but it was like they were mixing and this one was coming together pretty quickly, and everyone kind of liked it. So, like, all right, well, let's let's also put this one on there too. It's kind of buried, you know, the second song on the second side. That's usually not where you put your lead single. But I guess once the record people heard it, they're like, "That's the one. We're going with it." And hey, thank God they did for everybody's sake. I guess. Yeah, and this one is it's kind of a perfect cocktail of it doesn't start off super fast it doesn't start off super hard and then it goes into the big power chords and then it, halford is singing but not in the super high register mm -hmm. so it, it's very accessible to put on the radio like i said before it, this can't get loud enough the chords at the beginning, they're not anything hard, difficult to play, no. but just, you know, it's coming and just to hit that is just, it just sounds phenomenal. It still does today. It does. You know, it's just a, it's simple. Jump, 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 jump. Yeah. And you know what it is right away. You've got another thing coming is another kind of cliched turn of phrase. I mean, your parents might say that if you think you're riding your bike past dark, you've got another thing coming, you know? Yeah. So, so it's, it's kind of got that threat to it, which I think metal fans like big fat power chords. I don't know. It, it was it was huge in the USA for them. I think it helped earn them a spot on like Entertainment Tonight, uh, which is you know for you know suburbanites like when they're sitting down to dinner. Hey, let's see what's up in the world of entertainment. It's like you know they get some pretty girl out there to interview. Them. Well, if you don't know Judas Priest, they play heavy metal, and if Hell has a jukebox, it probably plays heavy metal. <laughs> Isn't that right, Mary? That's right, sweetheart. You know it's. It, I just remember that clip vividly, but that's what you get once you get that big American break. You kind of have to deal with the cheesiness and, and talking to the suburbanites and the housewives who may not care about that kind of stuff. Or but just yeah, it gets you and, out and, there, and it, right? And yeah, but then it leads into the. I mean, you get the the look to the kid, like, do you know what this is? And of course, I know what this is. Yeah. Do you listen to stuff like this? Well, yeah, because it's awesome. But yeah, that that weird bridge of you know you don't really want your parents to know anything about this, and then once that happens, then you the, the other thing that kind of stakes too is then you've really got to kind of sell yourself after that. Like, yeah, you've got to do interviews with not like Rolling Stone and not Circus Magazine. Right. It's you know people going on tour with you know yeah, it's just a whole different level that you get to. That's right. And the other funny thing too is even today. Like if you didn't, okay, maybe you wouldn't, if you didn't see them, if you just heard them, like have you ever heard an interview with Ian Hill? He, he sounds like, like just a regular, oh yes, oh, hello. Yes, Absolutely. We like to play heavy metal. It's not like, you know, it's not like you, you would expect it to be like David Lee Roth. Hey, we're coming at you tonight with this thing. They're real down to earth, just kind of just normal gentlemen people that go out there and melt faces for a living. That's right. That's right. And uh, I can't imagine that they've played one show since 1982 without playing this song. 
I can't imagine. Oh yeah, the, yeah. This yes, this is the this is the signature tune. The, the thing that stinks about this song for them is that everybody wants to hear this, even if you don't know anything else. You know this song. You need to hear that. They have to play it. That's right. So then, and the songs are a little bit longer on the second side. There's five if you count Hellion Electric Eyes, one, six really on the first side. There's only four on the second side, so they, they can stretch out a little bit more. Fever to me is kind of a weird one. It, it, it's an odd one. It, it, it's light. It, it almost sounds acoustic at first. It's not. That's not nylon. They're definitely playing electric guitars. And then it heats up. This is where Ian really stands out with that thump, thump, thump on the bass to me. You know, fever. But and then, but it's weird to me because like after the solo, it gets a little airy again. And then boom, back to power. And then was there a keyboard on one of those transitions? It, it could have been. I think I think this was one of those deals where when they were in Spain, they were kind of like, hey, what else do we have in the studio here? Mm-hmm. Oh, we've got this keyboard or we've got a drum machine or something we can mess with. I, I wrote down, I said, here we go again. The, the <laughs> tune is good. The lyrics are weak. You know, it's just, ugh. I think this could have been a better song if they just swapped out the lyrics again for something a little harder than that. But yeah, I, I, this was this was one. To me, this was kind of a swing and a miss on this one. Yeah, some odd transitions some good pieces but as far as one complete song it's like it's cobbled together it's it's not my favorite it's just kind of weird for lack of a better word it's weird yeah you're right you're right there are there are bits and pieces there that you you could have rescued out of here and put something else together but yeah this is not my favorite track yeah and then you wrap with devil's child which classic priest kind of song great power chords as you know that call and repeat where the guys kind of sing it back at him you know or shout it back at him they're not necessarily really singing it but it's it's a great way you know to end the record you know you're so damn wicked i believe you're the devil and it's 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 a classic priest song you know it may not make my top 10 of favorite priest songs but if they played this i wouldn't be upset about it Right. And, and I can imagine, too, you know, you're talking about entertainment tonight. Somebody going, you know, you, you're going into your child's room in 1982, picking this thing up. And that's something that we didn't touch on either. That priest, they don't have the, the continuity like Maiden with the Eddie stuff, but they do have, I think most of their stuff covers were done by the same design studio so they kind of all look similar mm-hmm. and they get like this thing just looks wicked on the front that the eagle yeah. i can imagine you know suburban mom picking this thing up oh my god what is this and then turning it over and seeing the last track on their devil's child right. i knew it i knew this was bad you shouldn't be listening to this you need to go talk to your father when he gets home and then i don't know maybe dad comes home and he's like yeah, this actually kind of rules. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about, but yeah, it, it, this it, it's a cool song, and and it's yes, it's very metal, a very metal title to it, right? Uh, and yeah, and a good way to end the, the deal. Actually, the one that I had has what is this? Prisoner uh, of your eyes. Prisoner in your eyes. Mm-hmm. But that that was from that was from the '85 Turbo session. So this so Devil's Child would have been the last the last track on this one. I think Prison Your Eyes is not a bad song. It's actually for ballads. It was better than Riding the Wind. I'm not Riding the Wind, but Take These Chains and Fever. Mm-hmm. Seven minutes and 12 seconds, but not part of the original deal. So, yeah, good way to end the record at 38 minutes and 43 seconds. A nice tight runtime on this one. Yeah, that was because you're right. I mean, I, anytime there's bonus tracks or whatever, I, I kind of want to know what they are. I want to listen to them. And you usually assume 
it was a B-side or it's just something that it just got cut. Like, okay, that's just not good enough for the album or it doesn't fit for whatever reason. I'm listening to the song. I think Prisoner of Your Eyes is pretty good. Again, yeah. it's got some keyboard in it, but then that was that was what they were doing around the turbo time. They were mixing some of that stuff in. Good guitar work from both and good vocals from Rob, but it it doesn't shock me to hear that 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 was kind of part of the turbo sessions because it sounds a lot more like turbo than than it does screaming for vengeance. And and I wonder too why I mean it but since they were since they included it on this record it must have been at least written or partially written during this time and I wonder why they didn't include it. Maybe it wasn't finished yet. Maybe they thought we already have 10 tracks, don't even worry about it. Mm-hmm. It's not worth putting a 7 minute and 12 second song on this deal but you're right i do like the well you know what was going on with this why why did you why did you pick this instead of that uh and and live tracks are always cool which they can pick from but to have that unreleased deal is just a little window into what was happening at this time well but but that was my question like did they start it and not finish it you know, why would they put that on here? Because I mean, that's not only is it three years later, but there's also another album in between, Defenders of the Faith. So that that would be my guess is that is that this the the genesis of this song at some point in time came from these sessions, or else it wouldn't make sense. That's I mean that's that's my guess. Although you know they did a um, you know a, a re-release of Defenders of the Faith, which included a couple of tracks, you know, one live track, and then one, Turn On Your Light, which was also recorded during the Turbo sessions. And I'm like, is it just the Turbo had so many, you had to spread them out over some of the other albums? That's Yeah, it could have been. You know, I mean, that that might be it. Because Turbo, Turbo came out in 86, okay? So that was 86. And I don't know, yeah, did they when they re-released that one, in 2001 anyway, All Fired Up was the bonus track, and that was recorded during the, the Turbo Sessions. But I, I did eventually get the 30th anniversary with, uh, with the bonus live disc. It was basically the whole concert. It's basically the Priest Live, not that exact show, but it was the Priest Live tour from a different night of the tour. I think, I think Priest Live was maybe recorded in Dallas, and this was maybe in Kansas City or something like that. But it showed the entire... The, the whole concert, because obviously they're not going to put stuff that was on Unleashed in the East also onto right. Priest Live. Plus, they don't yeah. have space. It's already a double LP. Maybe you could do one CD, but it's double LP. But if they do a two-hour show, that's two CDs. So, yeah, we could maybe do that one one day because it is a step away. And then after that, when they came back with Ram It Down, then, of course, eventually Painkiller, they kind of re-solidified themselves as heavy metal gods and like yeah. we can do this thrash thing as well as anybody too but turbo was when they were just kind of trying to fit in i guess or, or, or you know you get a little taste of success and then you chase it and, and when you start to chase it and you make compromises that's when bad stuff happens it could have been too you never know it could have been that could have been a management thing where it's like okay guys you know we're hot 
we need to, you know, we need to get into the more of the mainstream. And I think we can do it that way. Yeah. I, I don't think that they, I mean, just everything about that record, it was like, this just doesn't work from the, from what they were wearing. They had more of like the, you know, like they had sequins now on the, on the leather and like, well, yeah, that was just a, yeah, they, they definitely corrected the course with Ram It Down and uh, and then Painkiller, which I think I think Painkiller was the first one with Scott Travis on it. That, that it sounds like it, cool. and I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, but no, it, but you know the thing is after after this one they go to Defenders of the Faith, even though it's technically a couple years later. I mean, I think it. I think these two, those two, go hand in hand very well as far as you know. Free Will Burning coincides with Screaming to Vengeance. Very well. Some heads are going to roll. The Sentinel is great. I like Love Bites. Eat Me Alive is a pretty pretty nasty one. Jawbreaker. I mean, they have great titles on these tracks, even if every song isn't fantastic. You know, this is another one we could probably review at, at some point. Maybe we could do a double header with this, with uh, Defenders and Turbo to kind of pit them against each other. Like, what changed, right? What, what happened? What, what went wrong? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know one of those, one of those songs is Turn On Your Light. You mentioned that before. Mm-hmm. Man, I don't know about that one. That's, that's, but once you get to the end, it's phenomenal. Once the electric guitars come in. And so, I think I really think the problem with Priest is that they were always too out there for mainstream, not so much mainstream listeners, but even mainstream like metal people, like they were just a little bit too pop. They were a little bit too out there as far as like their the S and M uh, kind of undertones. Like I think that there were people that would listen to stuff like Metallica that maybe wouldn't listen to Priest. Because it was it was just not heavy enough, right? But I don't. Th- I think they don't get enough credit for that for just being phenomenal musicians and having that signature sound and the way that they go back and forth. Like like in Metallica, it's Kirk Hammett plays all the solos, right? Right. That's that's you know every once in a while, especially on the later albums, Hetfield will take one, but nobody goes back and forth like these guys. Even Maiden, it's more you play part A and I'll play part B or vice versa, these guys go back and forth and then you're right. Then they start into a playing together, like doubling that that's, they don't get enough credit for that. I'm really sad now. Well, I'm sad that, that Glenn is, is declining in health, but mm-hmm. I'm really sad that KK is now just throwing dirt all over everybody. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened there at the beginning. It seemed like it was, you know, everybody, it was just like, Oh, it's just my time to, you know, take a step back. Now it sounds like he's saying it really wasn't, and he got forced out. But those two guys playing together, especially at this point in time, they were just phenomenal. They were. They were fantastic, you know. And Glenn's always got the red leather on or, or black yeah. with red on it. KK's always pure black, playing the, the flying V. Or, the you know, it's just, ah. You know, my question is on Defenders of the Faith. You know Free Will Burning is a badass song. It's the first song on the album. It's the first single released, and it was released in 83, even though the record didn't come out till till 84. Why call this one Defenders of the Faith when that's like the last track on the record, and it's like a minute and a half long, and it's not something that you really play? Why didn't they call the record Free Will Burning? That's, that's my question, that there's probably an answer out there, and maybe we'll research that and do that on another show. Because I believe they are. Defenders of the faith. Well, that makes sense. Metal faith. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. That, that would just be my guess. 
but uh, yeah, uh, we could. That's a whole other show. But yeah, free will burning is fantastic. It's a great way to start the record, and, and I think that was a that was a good. This is always gonna. This is always the hard deal when you when you break with a record. What do you do next? That's always the hard basic. You want to go. I want to do something new. But then we want you to sound exactly the same. So what do I do on this? Like we had that whole discussion with the cult where they put out love. They didn't want to do the same thing again. The record company was like, oh, no, no, no. You have to do the same, you know, keep the keep this machine going. And then they famously went and made a whole nother record. That's where you get that big break of the record company just wants to make money. If you if you put out an album that sounded exactly the same and it sold, they'd be perfectly happy with that. Yep, we've seen it time and time again. Unfortunate. That wraps up show number 85 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London. We appreciate you tuning in. It's good to get back to our roots of reviewing classic albums that we love. I mean, it's been great to have guests on, you know, having Jeff Downs and Carl Palmer of Asia on and having Chris Slade of ACDC and... Manfred Mann and the firm on. That's great. Being able to see live concerts again, like Yes, like the Rolling Stones, and like Duran Duran, who wrapped up British Summertime in Hyde Park, the final show, this past Sunday, July the 10th. And I did get to go see that. I did take the Wolf Cub with me. So on show 86, that's exactly what we're going to talk about, is Duran Duran in Hyde Park. Kind of a lifelong ambition to see those guys live and was finally fulfilled and We will talk about that, but hopefully you enjoyed this show on Screaming for Vengeance by Judas Priest. Seeing Judas Priest in the front row while KK and Glenn were still in the band was a real treat for me. You know, I got Ian Hill's pick. I darn near got Scott Travis's drumstick at front row. It was so hot because I was under the lights that they were under. I can't imagine how Rob Halford did it in total leather, head to toe, plus leather overcoat. It was Cincinnati. It was summertime under hot lights. I don't know how he didn't pass out, but it was a real special night for me. I'm really glad I got to see them. And I know Judas Priest is on tour now. Maybe not the same old band as always, but if you've got a chance to see them, don't miss it. you got to see Judas Priest before they've gone away for good. Now, as usual, folks, we want to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? Hey, let us know. You can tweet us or DM us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. We've got a YouTube page. We've got Instagram now. I think we might be on Facebook. I'm not even sure. We're trying to do more with our social media. And be sure you go check out rarevinyl.com. It's a great place to find hard-to-find records in beautiful condition. And if you use the code podcast, you will get a 10% discount on all your purchases there. So thank you for Rare Vinyl for being our sponsor. Thank you for Pantheon for being our network and our family. Pantheon Podcasts, about 100 different shows. There's something for everybody there, a lot of great rock-related shows, and we are very proud to be members of that family. And as I say, yeah, next week, Jax and I are going to talk about the Duran Duran Show in Hyde Park. So make sure you tune in for that. Be sure to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you're thinking about it, folks, hey, go give us a five-star review or at least a positive review wherever you get your podcast. We're big on Apple and iTunes, Spotify. Good Pods has been very good to us. Google Play, it doesn't matter where you get them. If you like the show, take a minute, tell a friend, recommend us. It just helps us find more rock and roll fans like you and grow our show. So until next time, you rock and rollers, all of you all around the world, be cool and stay safe.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 